Welcome to the Gentleman Ultra podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Frank Rizzotto. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Daniel Williamson, um, author of Blue and Gold Passion, a history of Boca Juniors, and author of a new book that's um, probably will be released and has been released by the time you hear this, When Two Worlds Collide, um, sort of a, a history of the Intercontinental Cup. Daniel, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Frank. Yeah, it's a, my pleasure. My pleasure. So um, for those that don't know, can you explain uh, the Intercontinental Cup and what it is and its origins and how it all came about? Yeah, sure. So to, to talk about the start of the Intercontinental Cup, we probably need to go back five years before when UEFA created the, the European Cup and what's today the Champions League. So that, that was running for five years until the South Americans thought, if we create our own continental competition, we can then try and arrange a game against the winners of UEFA's competition. And, and that was where the Intercontinental Cup came from. So they were the first two continental uh, competitions, um, South America, Europe, and then other, other confederations followed in the 60s. So, so that's kind of where it came about. It was this, it was the, the Copa Libertadores was almost purely created just so they could find a winner to then go and play um, against the European champions. And, and it was a, it was a, for UEFA and Comnibol, it was a competitive game organised between those two confederations. FIFA just saw it as a, a friendly match because they weren't involved effectively. So, so it was completely organised between um, UEFA and Comnibol, and it started in 1960. That was the, the first ever edition, and then it ran all the way until 2004 when it was kind of absorbed into uh, FIFA getting their revenge and creating a a monster of a tournament, which we we still have today. So yeah, that that's the sort of the the, the start and end point. Did did FIFA, um, I guess, recognise the the previous winners going back to nineteen sixty once they'd brought in the monster that is the Club World Cup? Hashtag yeah, it's wrong with modern football. <laughs> yeah, eventually they did. I mean, throughout its whole history, there there was a, an uneasy relationship. You know, there were there were times where they were they were pushing to get other. Uh, confederations involved in the Intercontinental Cup and and they 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 wouldn't recognize them as world champions because they said it was a friendly um but in, in recent years they have said okay now we'll go back and the winners of the Intercontinental Cup are given the same kind of kudos as a winner of a FIFA Club World Cup now but but that's the only continental competition that is given that that status there are other tournaments before in before 1960 sort of there's one called the Copa Rio, which Palmeiras won, and and they think that that was that that was, they they basically said they're, they're a world champion. That was in '51, but FIFA doesn't recognise that. And there were other tournaments like that where teams came together from Europe and South America, and loads of friendly tours and things like that. But this is the only one other than the FIFA Club World Cup that's recognised as as creating a world champion. So so um, why did you write the book, and how was that 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 whole process? How did that all evolve? Well. When I wrote my first book that you mentioned, the Blue and Gold Passion, the, the Bocker book, that was a, a, around a time when I was wanting to write a book and I found that there was a, a gap in the market, as in the, there was no Bocker Juniors book in English anywhere. So that's why I sort of decided to write that book. During the research process, Bocker's 
greatest ever night is is basically in 2000 when they beat Real Madrid for the Intercontinental Cup. So obviously, if you go and ask someone who's 100 years old, they might have a different idea. But most fans that you'd speak to, most sort of modern fans and fans of a certain age will say that that night in 2000 in Tokyo is the, the greatest night in their history. So when I was obviously researching the Boca book, I was looking around and there was nothing on the Intercontinental Cup. So when it came to do my next book, I thought, you know what, this is a really fascinating piece of football history that there might be an odd article out there. There's more in South America, so you'll find more in Brazil, in Brazil, in, in South America, in Spanish-speaking countries. Not a lot in English. Um, there's a lot of autobiographies out there, like Roy Keane, for example. He scored the winner in 99, and, and he, he gives it a sentence. You know, So things like that where it just wasn't really mentioned anywhere. So that was why I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll do the book about that one. And then it, pulling it together, the whole history from beginning to end, and giving each of the, the, the teams that played in it and giving them the sort of coverage it deserves, really. Mm-hmm. And I've read the book and it's absolutely fantastic. I can't recommend it enough. Um, but you touch on, you sort of, if you can explain how you weave in all the chapters and how, you yeah, essentially, like you said, you give each side and each era its credit. Like, um, like I never knew that much about Penarol, but you read the book and you, you see that name coming up, you know, through the book um, time and time again. You, you hear about, um, is it Alfredo Spencer? Is that his first name? or my Alberto Spencer, yeah. Alberto Spencer, yeah, like names like that that all come up. Um, yeah, like how, how did you get the the book all together and how did you sort of weave weave through those years and, and and basically everything that happened throughout that 40 odd years it's kind of i whenever i'm doing so i'm, I'm this is my second book I'm, I'm writing my third at the moment and you always start off with an idea of how it's going to go and then during the writing process it kind of goes in a different direction so i realized that quite early on in the process that what i don't want to do is like an encyclopedia where it's 1961 this team played this date this was you know and just list the 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 scores and and I wanted to sort of do it in themes that's why I'm bunching bunching sort of chapters together where if there's a team that played in it quite a lot I might do what a chapter just on them um I focused mainly focused on the winners of the competition obviously the the people the teams who lost they get a comprehensive mention but tried to sort of bunch it in in almost like key teams and key figures um so, for example, I did a chapter on Milan, who who they, they won it in a the main chapter I did on them was 80, 89 and ninety. They did participate in other other com- other versions, but I just wanted to have a chapter just on that era, focusing on Arrigo Saki and, and other figures like that. So, so that's kind of how I did it. Just it's it's roughly in chronological order, but it's there might be you might jump back and forth um, based on sort of the, the the key times for those teams. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, because you do it really well because you sort of. Like you, the chapter you've got there, like you mentioned about um, Milan or even like, you know, I am simply Zico. I know you've got like a lot, a lot of the chapter descriptions, um, Platini, Del Piero and the old lady. So like, you know, that's about Juventus, but you don't think it's just going to be about Platini and Del Piero. And, and the way that you sort of weave through the, the eras and the sides. Um, yeah, you do like a fantastic job, job on it. Um, you mentioned there like um, the Tokyo and moving to Japan, um, you talk about um, Patrick Nally in the book. Um, can you explain to those who don't know who he is and the influence he had on the Intercontinental Cup and also what the move to Japan did for the, the cup, the life of the cup? Yeah, so as we mentioned before, 60 was the first version. And towards the, the first five or six years of the competition, it classed as, you know, the real golden era where, you know, you've got 
the, the, the matches, if you go, go back and look at the score lines, you've got goal-laden affairs, you know, you've got Pelé in there, um, you've got the great Real Madrid side with like uh, uh, Puskas and Di Stefano, um, you've got, you know, um, Elenio Herrera's Inter, it, it was kind of like classed as like a bit of a golden period where you've just got all these key figures, you know, probably a bit nostalgic, you know, and you look back and all the footage is in black and white and really grainy and stuff. But what happened in the late 60s was that Brazilian teams weren't participating in the Copa Libertadores. So there was one year where uh, where basically Comunabol and, and the Brazilian Federation were at loggerheads because the Brazilian Federation weren't happy with the, the plans to move it to two teams from each country. Started off just as the champions. I mean, it's it's something we see now in the sort of Champions League. But when, when they introduced wanted to introduce the the, the runner up, if you like, or the winner of the domestic cup, the 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 CBF were were not happy, so they pulled out all their teams. And then also what happened was Santos Santos kind of decided rather than playing in the Copa Libertadores, they would go on on world tours and and, and earn loads of money. So rather than you know traveling to Venezuela. And earning nothing, they'd go and play in, I don't know, Hong Kong, or they end up in in Africa as well. At like one the point. Harlem Globetrotters of football, pretty much, yeah, because there was just more money in it, and that yeah. that was how they would keep Pele as well by by money spinning games, paying him big money. Anyway, the reason I'm mentioning that is because without the Brazilian teams, the Argentinian teams really came to the fore. Mm. Two of the most powerful countries, you'd say, with Uruguay at the time as well, the three most powerful countries. But without Brazil, Argentinian teams almost kind of had a bit of a monopoly on the Copa Libertadores and that led to some sort of unsavory incidents, if you like, in the late 60s. So in in um in 67 you had Racing against Celtic, uh, the Battle of Montevideo where where it was pretty violent. And then after that Estudiantes played three years in a row. Um they played Man United uh, in 68. They played um they played Milan in 69. Um, and then they played uh, Feyenoord in 70. And in, in those four years, you know, it was pretty rough, to say the least. And in each of those games, there was incidents that were were unsavoury. What that meant was that in the 70s, <clears throat> the, the, the the European teams were just like, you know, this isn't worth it. This this There's no money in it, really. We're travelling all that way. The, one key difference just to mention there is that for South American teams, it was typically because it was sort of t- took place at the end of the calendar year. For them, it was almost like the end of their season. So almost like the culmination of their season, if you like. European teams, it was in slap bang in the middle of the season. A lot of the countries had winter breaks as well. So you're almost saying to players during a winter break, you've actually got to travel to South America. You know, it take you ages on the plane because you have to take about six different connections. <laughs> yeah, so they're just- every time I'd read that every, in every chapter, it just blew my mind how it was like, fly to you know alaska via you know yeah. like london alaska america then argentina i was just like what this is it must have taken yeah like two or three days to get there like you said yeah and, and the planes wouldn't be as comfortable as they are today <laughs> so yeah it joined, so basically that led to the the, the decline of the, the cup in the 70s where the european teams just didn't want to go the champions pulled out on numerous occasions there were two occasions where it just didn't take place at all because what happened when the champion declined the runner-up stepped in but there were two occasions where the the runner-up couldn't couldn't take part as well so got towards the late 70s and there was a there was a game in 79 Nottingham Forest won the European Cup but they pulled out so Malmo stepped in and Malmo played Olympia of Paraguay two teams that really let's be honest they're not they're not sort of monsters on their on, on either on their respective continents 
and it was a damp, real damp squib. So the Malmo, when Malmo hosted, 5,000 people turned up, which was by far the lowest attendance in the history of this competition. And there was just a real lack of interest by that point. Um, and it was dying, it was floundering. And in 1980, it was Forest against Nacional from Uruguay. Forest won the European Cup again. This time they were trying their best to, to organise something, but they just couldn't come up with a date. One of the dates that was mooted was... Um, Clash with the Uruguay game. So Nacional said, we can't because we'll lose all our players to the to the, the national team and then therefore we'll be weakened. And so it got to the stage where it was like, okay, you know what? This just this just isn't going to happen. And that would have killed the cup because after the problems in the 70s, that would have killed the cup. So a guy called Patrick Nally, he was um, I think he was only 23 at the time. He'd been he'd been sort of working with a marketing agency and he was involved in the 78 World Cup in Argentina, negotiating rights with the, the military regime over there to get advertising hoardings and stuff like that so they basically he was working with loads of big companies and how they could make sport and 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 their brand link up if you like and he, he got involved with a, a japanese agency that that put him in touch with toyota and toyota were looking for how they could increase the brand profile and they came up with this idea of why don't we sort of revive this cup move it to Tokyo and give it like a dual branding. So it was still the Intercontinental Cup, but also the Toyota Cup. So from 1980 onwards, that there were two trophies given out. So the, the classic trophy that was given out from 60, but also this new Toyota Cup. So when, when a team won, they went on the podium at the end and the captain and the vice captain both had to go and collect a separate trophy. The other thing that they introduced was um, they had a giant golden key, which was the Man of the Match Award. And... Um, and the winner also got a Toyota car, so so it was quite a quite a good prize to win back back then when you know when players didn't necessarily have the the riches they have now. So so he sort of, with the help of Toyota, revived the cup. From then on, there were no no one declined to participate. But what's what what you have to mention there is that UEFA had it written into the contract that anyone participating in the European Cup had to go and play in Tokyo if they won. It was a Okay. It was a so there was a contractual obligation, but it was also a lot more attractive to teams to do that because yes, it was still in the middle of the season and it was you know the travel wasn't particularly welcomed, but it was they were guaranteed a certain amount of money that it was a lot more lucrative for them to go and do that. They'd have all the expenses paid, the flights, the hotels, all of that stuff would be paid, mm. and then they'd also be paid a fee. So it, it was a lot more attractive for them to go to Tokyo, even though it was still a bit of a nightmare. And also I think there was a, a sense of, because it's neutral ground, it's likely to be, you're not going to have those issues that you had when you went to South America and you were yeah. dealing with a South American referee uh, and everything was really hostile. Yeah. It was it was almost like neutral ground. So, so that's how it ended up in Japan. And one of the things I mentioned in the book is that, you know, people might say, oh, that, what so what, that it went to Japan. But I think, football is a lot of football is about legacy as well and you know japan when they went over there no one was really interested the locals had to be kind of told who who was playing and almost given like a you know okay you're supporting this team today this is so and so from from you know whichever country and sumo wrestling and baseball were like the, the main sports there but then you've got in 92 the j league was created and then in 2002 obviously they hosted the world cup with south korea so you know, it's all intangible, of course, but would either of those two things happened had this not gone over there and, and showed the Japanese people that there was a bit of an appetite for football? 
you know, you can almost Japanese football existed before 1980. Don't get me wrong, um, but that was something that kind of really gave it that global feel and and helped to to influence the next generation of Japanese football fans. And you you mentioned in the book like how the the Japanese Football Association didn't necessarily um, have anything to do with a lot of the you know they weren't involved in the organization but they took care of a lot of the logistical stuff where you know setting up training grounds and venues and organizing um a lot of the other stuff like on the football side of things um so yeah it probably gave them an opportunity to see the quality and the standard and what what was around the world and obviously something they aspire to like like we mentioned like zico ends up there however many years later um and he's still there to this day um but yeah it's a like you said, there, there was a, there was a few standouts and a few um, Italian sides that were involved. Actually, before I go on that, I'll just go on back to what you're saying there. Do you think that's a a myth then that you know, like you touch on it in the book in particular with I think it's Nottingham Forest you talk about. Um, I can't remember who you interviewed. Was it um, the surname McGovern? John McGovern. Yeah, yeah. John McGovern. Yeah, about um, you know the European teams didn't take this competition as seriously as the South Americans. Um, like you, you mentioned there, like Olympia from Paraguay, like this would still be their biggest achievement to this day. You know, it's it's still yeah. They, all these Massive. trophies and and victories are still recognised, whether it be from the sixties or the seventies in South American countries. They still sing about it. Um, but yeah, do you think that's a, a myth that they took it a lot more seriously than the European teams? And when you spoke to the players involved, did they sort of shatter that that myth? I, I mean, it does. It does seem to be on another level for the South American teams. That's, that's you know, that that's sort of undeniable, really. I mean, you mentioned Olympia there. I, I tweeted something about Olympia and it, it just, it, there was thousands of likes and retweets, you know, so it just, you know, for them and, you know, for, for these two kind of teams, it's, it's it was a massive competition. And, you know, like I said, Boca's greatest night of their history is, is beating Real Madrid in 2000. And it's definitely undeniable that, that for, for the South Americans, it's, it's the the sort of pinnacle um, for Europeans. You'd probably say that winning the winning the European Cup is the pinnacle, and this is a, a nice bonus. Um, but I think, yeah, to say that European teams didn't take it seriously is, is definitely a myth, in my opinion. There's probably a separation between, you know, some of the English teams. I mean, you know, we we talked we talked off air about Craig Johnston, and and, and he talks about how they were they were underprepared Liverpool in '81. But I think what when 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 for me, this all kind of stems from this whole Premier League thing in England, where there's this idea that English football is just completely superior, and and what what that what that does when people sort of not belittle the opponents, but you're almost saying that Zico, you know, wasn't a great player. I mean, you know, you're talking about some of the best players in the world, and it's almost like, oh yeah, we didn't win, we didn't win because we weren't prepared. But actually, who's to say that you would have won anyway? Because you, you're coming up against Zico in his prime, really. Who at that point? He's probably the best player in the world. Well, um, Craig Johnson says that he, essentially he said um, we were handed a football lesson. Yeah, um, exactly. So and we, he said well, they were ill prepared in the fact that they had absolutely no idea what they were about to get themselves into, and that the Flamengo yeah. team was like on a different level. You know, exactly. And you know, I always think that you know there, there might be subconsciously something in the back of their mind that that's made them switch off a little bit. Mm. Um, and I kind of liken it to you know a boxer who might. They might do all of the stuff in the training camp that they normally do. They might do all the sprints and all the sparring. And but if they're not, if if, if there's something in the back of the mind that makes them underestimate an opponent, they end up losing. But 
it's all well and good just to punch a bag for an hour or so, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, to think that to think that Graham Souness would have gone on a pitch and 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 just like, oh yeah, I, I just don't believe it. I don't believe that a team that yeah. that wins dozens of trophies all of a sudden goes all the way to Tokyo and just sort of thinks, oh, this is a bit of a laugh. This, mm. I, I, I just don't buy it whatsoever. That yes, the pre- preparation might not have been um, as diligent as it could be, and they might have had a few beers on the plane, etc. But to think that they just didn't make an effort and uh, just talking about John McGovern and. I always say this when I'm talking to people about this because I just when I he he didn't actually play in the games in the game in uh, 1980 because he was injured and he sat on the bench next to Clough, which was quite rare because Clough didn't like players who were injured anywhere near. They weren't even allowed in the stadium normally. Um, I was reading uh, recently reading Jonathan Wilson's biography of, of Clough and he 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 seems to think it's down to when his career ended as a player because of injury. It's like a and he was just a reminder like, for him. He hated injuries. He hated going to hospitals. And if player was injured, he just said, stay away. But John McGovern was his captain and he signed him four times. So there was obviously a little bit of a bond there. So John McGovern went to Tokyo, even though he was injured, sat on the bench next to Clough. And um, when I suggested to him that, that um, that you know, Forrest took it lightly, you could tell the tone in his voice, we're talking over the phone, the tone of his voice just changed and he was not happy, to say the least. And he completely refuted the idea that that yeah again I can't imagine a, a Clough team going all the way to Japan and just just sort of lying back and you've got you've got to give the team you've got you've also got to give the teams credit who won those games because the gulf was minimal back then in between European and South American football mm-hmm. so sometimes you've just got to hold your hands up and say you know yes we might not have been 100% but we were just beaten by the better team mm-hmm. simple yeah, well, if you look that's at the, my if you, opinion. If you look at the Flamengo and Liverpool game, even like you just watch that, I think it's the is it the first goal, or the second goal, that pass from Zico, and yeah, that, that they're like even watching it now back on YouTube and just like that's incredible, you know, like so trying to defend against a ball like that is just yeah, you, you'd have yeah. no idea, you know. They did, well, like I say, he's he's the best player in the world at that point. He's kind of like before you know Pele's Pele's gone, Maradona's not yet. Yeah. Um, fully on the scene he's obviously around but he's not he's not the world star he is and obviously you've got Michel Platini as well in the in 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 you know in around the scene but mm. Zico at that point the early 80s he's arguably the best player in the world so just I think just give give a bit of credit the other thing yeah. is Flamengo well, goes had... back to oh sorry I was gonna say it goes back to that old argument you know like you talk about Pele in the book and you know he's still leading goal scorer in the competition is that right? I think, or yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he, he, it's like, oh, Pelé never went to Europe, you know. He, but yeah, he's still up against you know a Benfica side and an AC Milan side. It's regardless of whether they've played in Europe or they've only come from South America or vice versa. Yeah, you still have to give them that respect. Yeah, and that game against Benfica as well. He he uh, in '62, and that's he he even says that that's the best performance of his career. Mm. Um, he scores a hat trick in Lisbon, and yeah. I think I think it just proved beyond doubt that with with that and with the World Cup performances that that he could have easily played in Europe and he would have still been the best player. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. yeah, but I think like I mentioned before about the Premier League and and you know to a to a certain extent European football fans that there is a bit of a a bit of a snobbery about you know that that football is the best and you know you can't possibly be the best team or the best player if you don't come from Europe, which is is a nonsense. I mean now it's it's getting to the stage where the, the power and the wealth is concentrated in European football, but but it's not always been that way. And it certainly wasn't, especially sort of in the early days of the 
Intercontinental Cup. And that, that's why I find it fascinating as well, because it was it was a period where where there was equality. So 22 to 21 was the South American victories in the in the 43 versions of the cup that took place. And um, it was just around the time when it finished in 2004 that I think the balance was swinging in the favour of the Europeans. But but before that, it was quite equal. And you can see that with the the teams that that, that won the cup. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, like I know so, from us in Australia, this this game would come on, you know, once a year, you'd get it at a, a reasonably good hour, you know, to watch. And it was always fun because you'd see, you know, Cruzeiro or you'd see um, Hamburg or Argentinos Juniors or Penarol, any of those sides, you just pull off names. But a lot of it, we didn't know, like I'd never seen any of those teams before. So that's what made this game so much fun and why it was always a, a highlight and a standout. That's just for me, I'm a bit of a nerd for those things. But then now with the FIFA Club World Cup, it's like, you know, every man and his dog's invited and it, 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 it takes takes away, you know, takes away um, from how special this sort of cup was. Yeah, I think it, I, I feel like it was just a bit more exotic that you you would have those teams and it was from an era where other teams could go and win the trophy. You know, there, there are teams obviously that, that appear quite a lot, but there, there are other teams just dotted, dotted around in there that just, they'd never get close to the European Cup now. And even in South America with the Copa Libertadores, it, Brazilian teams are just dominating now because yeah, they've got the... Like the Sao Paulo the team in the early 90s, the Velas Yeah, exactly. Um, Velas Sarsfield side. Um, even like the 2000, the Boca team, that was like probably one of my first exposures to watching Boca live. And just going yeah. like, you've, you've heard about them and you've read about them and you know about the kit and the stadium and all that sort of jazz. But yeah, just seeing seeing them um, and seeing like Martin Palermo and Raquel May and all them do their thing, you just go, oh, this is, this is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, so absolutely. talking about winners, um, we'll touch on it from an Italian point of view. So obviously we had um, Milan in 1963. They went down to Benfica. Um, Inter had a huge impact. So 1964 and 1965, they won this cup back to back. Um, geez, was there anything special or anything that stood out when you were researching the the grand interside of this mid-60s period? Yeah, I think just the, the, the key thing that stood out to me was just, just how revered that team was. Um, you know, I've obviously heard about some of the names involved, but getting to sort of delve deeply into it was, was really quite fascinating. So just understanding about how all these years later and good touching on that how important it is you know Italian football seems to be a lot different compared to English football say in, in how they they look back at this competition so this is obviously a huge competition for most Italian teams that were involved and 100%. um and, and you know for Inter it's, that that team is classed as pretty much classed as their greatest ever era mm. and you know the fact that they won this twice will only help that um you know, had they not played in this cup, but they'd still won two European Cups, they might still be highly revered. But this is just the sort of, um, you know, the, the the icing on the cake. Um, so so yeah, that that was really interesting. Um, well, even the travel team in 2010, like they won the travel and it was and it was fantastic. But they needed to go over and win the cup World Cup as it was then. It's sort of you know just put yeah. the icing, you know, put the put the icing on the cake. But um, yeah, and what, and then one thing of, of course got um. The Milan team of the late 80s, 89 and 90. So in the book, um, you were fortunate enough to talk to Rigo Saki through a, a translator. Yeah, what was like that was what was that like as an experience? That was brilliant, yeah. Uh, because we were we were sort of messaging on WhatsApp and I was like frantically 
going on Google Translate to, to sort of, you know, put, put in what I wanted to say, then put it into WhatsApp. And, um, but he basically said, you know, I'll do this, but only via a translator. So then, so, so then I had to, I said, right, okay, well, I'll WhatsApp call you and then I'll add in, no, I'll, a WhatsApp call the translator, then I add you in. But he, his WhatsApp profile wouldn't let me add him in, so I had to go back to him and say, "Right, we need to start the call. Then I need to add in the translator." So it was all very awkward, and I felt really bad for messing him about, and I was panicking, thinking, "You know, this this interview is just going to fall out of bed here." He's just um, going to hang up and say, "No, I'll... yeah, yeah, yeah," because you know he, he has no idea who I am. Um, I'm not paying him or anything. It's just I'm, I'm asking him for sort of half an hour of his time and, and he doesn't come across think, as the most approachable person you know given, yeah he would well know. be well be within his rights to just be like you know what let's leave this but yeah. anyway got him on the call and he was brilliant he he was really kind of um i'm trying to think of what the word he, he was just great he, he was great value he was really friendly really passionate he just he, he was obviously in the in the midst of promoting that immortals book um so he seemed to know just every little detail all the games, you know, I mean, 89, 90, we're talking like well over 30 years ago. And he, he was just reeling off all the details and some of the quotes that I put in the book, you know, um, really interesting. You know, he said something like the the Atlético Nacional game was was as difficult as reading a Kafka novel, you know, just stuff like that, where I just thought this is brilliant. You know, this it's not just a generic reply to a question. It's, a, it, it's kind of like, I love those kind of answers, you know, where, they're just it's a bit poetic and they're, they're sort of putting something a bit different behind it. Um and, and yeah, he mentioned that Atletico Nacional were the probably in the top three or four toughest teams he faced while he was Milan manager. So so that that was quite interesting. And um but yeah, I know he's brilliant and he he was he was really good. And at the end, he was, you know, once we'd stopped recording and he was he was, you know, wishing me all the best with the book. And yeah, re- seemed like a really nice yeah. guy. So so that was brilliant to talk to him. Did you send um, him a copy? Of- you should you should have to send him well, a copy. I'm, I'm going to try, but um, yeah. I've still not got my copies yet. But I'm going to, <laughs> copies, but, uh, I'm going to try and send him one if I can um, if I can negotiate the WhatsApp <laughs> conversation. Um, yeah, he, he was great. He, that yeah. that was probably in, in the whole process of me doing this book. Speaking to him was possibly the the highlight. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, and then also, of course, Juventus um, had a bit of a they've had a dramatic ride through this tournament. So. Post uh, Heisel, was it? Um, Michelle Platini caused a, a bit of a, a controversy once they they won that final, and of course they won in '96 from memory. But yeah, when they beat River yep. Plate as well, they beat so River Plate. they've had a bit of an impact on this tournament too. Um, we are fortunate enough to speak to Platini. I'm guessing not given his recent no. <laughs> recent events, but um, yeah, I think he's got because think- at that time he was considered probably arguably the best player in the world for that two or three year period. And of course, Alessandro Del Piero had like a huge impact on the win in the nineties as well. That was probably a lot of people will say that's probably his best period before he got injured. And, you know, he was the the young Del Piero, I guess the fast one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And they also, um, they also played in, in 73 because um, they, Ajax won, but as we mentioned before, they declined to participate Juventus stepped in and said, we will play, but it has to be a one-off game on neutral soil, end up being in Rome. Um, anyway, they lost, but... Uh, that's, that's pretty, that's, that's pretty uh, neutral, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah. well, exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, but the funny thing was that, you know, it was it was a Wednesday afternoon and 
you know, it's still quite away from um, Turin to Rome. So they didn't really have a lot of fans in the, in the, in the ground and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a hostile home game and they lost in, in any case, but, um, but yeah, the, so the chapter I did, as you mentioned before, it was, it was sort of starting off in the, with the 85 game and, and finishing off in the 96 game and almost looking at that period. And um, in, in 85, it was post high. So, and I spoke to uh, Adam Digby, who does a lot to do, you know, a lot of, of work with, you know, Juventus and he's written a book about the history as well. And, and he said what, what was really interesting was that, you know, although they won the European Cup at High Soul, they and, and Platini sort of ill-advised went on the pitch with the trophy afterwards, but they they couldn't really celebrate and they didn't want to celebrate because of what had happened. Whereas, you know, a little bit of time had passed by the time they went to Tokyo and they, they felt like they could really kind of they, they won they won the game of pens and they felt like they could really celebrate. And it was almost like they were celebrating the two trophies and I'm guessing there was a lot of emotion involved in that for the for the players that were involved and and yeah he was he you know we talked about Zico being the best player in the world that the you know he probably passed the baton on to uh, Platini in in that pre Maradona spell um, and he was yeah he was unplayable and any, anyone listening I, I always say that you know go back and watch the highlights of that 85 games it's it's possibly the best game in the tournament sort of modern history for, for me in terms of excitement and and what's happening and platini was absolutely unplayable and there's a really um i'm that sure any that was two two draw two two and then on pens yeah and he scored the winning pen but there's a really um there's a really funny moment where he had a couple of goals or he was involved in a couple of goals that were disallowed and he got he obviously got to a stage where he was really frustrated and he basically just sat down on the floor in like a bit of a comical pose and uh, uh if i'm not mistaken paulo dibala did he sort of recreated it in recent years so I'm sure UVA fans know what I'm talking about, but but yeah, that was that was one of the greatest games really. And and Argentinos Juniors were really, you know, they they gave as good as they got. They had they had a really exciting young team as well. Ironically, off the back of Maradona being sold to um to Boca Juniors and then on to Barcelona, they got a bit of a cash windfall and and pumped it into the playing squad. Mm-hmm. So they they were they were building up a, a good team by that time. Um, and one of their star players ended up. Ended up going to Milan, um, sort of in the, you know, in the wake of this game. Really, didn't work out for him, but, um, but yeah. So, so that was that was a really good game. And then obviously, yeah, you move on to '96. Probably not as not as exciting game, but uh, Del Piero scored the winner, and and he said as well. He he he. I've got a quote from him where he sort of said that that was one of the the big moments of his career as well, playing playing on the world stage, if you like. And as you said, it was the sort of first version of Del Piero before his injury and then uh, that was like a real crowning moment for him as a, as a sort of young player to go and score the winning goal and be really decisive in a big game like that. Yeah was there any standout or highlight in researching the book any particular side or player you took a shining to? I think um, you know apart from Saki you know I, I enjoyed I enjoyed researching Sao Paulo team in the early 90s um, they they beat Milan. Well, they beat Barcelona. Then they beat Milan, uh, which was really, really interesting. You know, two two sort of powerhouses of Europe as well. And um, just to sort of keep on the the theme of 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 Italian football, Milan then went and lost to Velez in '94 um, with Carlos Bianchi, and he 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 won it with Velez in '94. Then he went and won it with Boca in 2000. Lost it with Boca in 2001 against Bayern went away, came back and then won it with Boca against Milan in 2003. So he's probably, you know, 
probably one of the one of if not the the greatest figure in the history of the competition because you know to go and do that nine years apart with two different teams um quite incredible really and 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 to do it against you know Milan of 94 pretty pretty impressive team of course Alessandro Costa Curta took part yeah. in every tournament and we know you put a piece out for the gentleman ultra with that um he's another that one that was interesting heavily, yeah. heavily involved in, in this tournament wasn't he speaking of that yeah and, yeah and yeah for anyone who's not read that that piece he's ba- it's basically the, the gist of it is that he 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 was able to play in 89 90 uh, 93 94 and 2003 so 14 years of from his first to his last in uh, appearance, five appearances. Same for Maldini, but um, Costa Curta had a bit of a bit more of a top, topsy-turvy relationship. You know, he won the first two, but uh, but then it went downhill for him there. He got sent off in one. He 94 against um, Velez. He had an absolute shocker. Um, against Sao Paulo, you know, he was having a running battle with a guy called Muller who um, scored, scored one of the goals and was, you know, rubbing it in his face afterwards. And, 2003 he um missed the pen as well in the in the shootout against uh, Boca so so yeah he had, an eventful five matches for him yeah, yeah and funnily enough I, I reached out to him for an interview and uh he didn't get back to me so he, he probably <laughs> he probably sees the name of the competition and just thinks no I don't want to talk about that no comment no. <laughs> exactly yeah. yeah that's great that's awesome yeah, yeah. Very good. All right. Well, thanks again, Dan, for your time. Yeah, so when two worlds collide, uh, release date is 18th of July. So I'm guessing by the time everyone hears this, it'll be out. Yeah, um, from our friends at Pitch Publishing. Um, yeah, go and grab a copy. I highly recommend it. Can you give us an insight into what you're working on next or is it uh, top secret? No, it's not top secret. Um, I'm doing a biography of Ronaldo, as in the Brazilian Ronaldo. Um so he was when I was so in I was born in eighty three so just sort of mid nineties when he was coming on the scene that was my sort of peak of you know getting into football and I was just I just I just I was blown away by him I loved him I I got the Barca shirt in um, ninety six when he signed and then I got the Inter shirt when he signed for Inter and I was just yeah I was I just idolised him and uh, in recent years I've realised that there's not loads of stuff out there on him in, in terms of books there are a couple of books that were released early 2000s but there's nothing that kind of touches on what he's up to now or the last say sort of five ten years of his career so um i'm i'm looking into his whole career from beginning to end Fantastic. including his yeah. so spell good. as a president so good he's so good yeah. another level another level yeah well thanks again for your time and yeah all the best with the book wish you all the best with it it's a great read yeah when two cup worlds collide um yeah thanks dan take care thanks frank cheers for having me that was a great conversation with Daniel Williamson, uh, the author of When Two Worlds Collide, out now where all good books are sold. Uh, thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate, review and share the podcast where you can. It all helps. Uh, thanks very much again for listening. Take care and enjoy your culture.